My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge of the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Holocene Podcast is sponsored by our magazine, an ad-free, print-only collection of stories from around the world about the human experience. You can use code PODCAST at checkout to save 15% off our first issue, which is now shipping. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Daniel Grossman. Daniel is a creative entrepreneur currently splitting his professional time between entertainment and soil. After earning an MFA in film from Columbia University in New York City, Daniel moved to Los Angeles and worked at, a ver at various studios, production companies, and management firms. He subsequently launched HUG, with NYC-based producer Micah Ross. At the beginning of the year, Daniel started working on Less, a project to market permaculture products directly to consumers in an effort to give them healthier and happier plants using materials that mitigate global warming. His goal is to build businesses that make the world a healthier, more sustainable place for all human beings. He lives in California, where he enjoys surfing and rock climbing. I hope you all enjoy this conversation between myself and Daniel Grossman. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. So I start off every podcast the same question, which is what, are the, what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? I'm going to be honest and say that I listened to some episodes of the podcast in preparation to talking to you today. And so <laughs> I, I kind of thought about this. Um, and the closest thing I can come up to you with a consistent answer is I count down from five. Um, when I was a kid, I didn't really want to get up in the morning. I don't think I'm organically a morning person. And I've struggled to turn into a guy that wakes up at five in the morning um, so I can have a little me time before my, my workday starts. And what I do is I, count, I hear my alarm. I have this uh, lofty alarm clock that is supposed to be a very subtle way of waking up so I can keep my phone away from my bed. And um, when I hear it go off, I count down from five backwards. Five, four, three, two. And by one, my feet are on the floor. Otherwise, mm. it's snooze fast until, you know, 7.30. Got it. And do you have a, the same wake-up time every day or does it change depending on what's going on? Or how, does, how does that kind of book? 5 a.m. It's, it's 5 a.m. on the on the west coast. It's 8 a.m. on the east coast. I, I think you and I share a sort of geographic challenge um, mm -hmm. where the sun isn't always in the same place in the sky, depending on what day of the week it is yeah. um, when I wake up. So I wake up at 5 a.m. here in California, where I am right now, and I wake up at 8 a.m. when I'm in New York. So if you were in, say, Europe or Africa or Asia, would you also, would you then adjust it more or would you still kind of stay near your same time? I think I'd shoot for that 5 a.m. Yeah. I 5 a.m. local or 5 a.m. Pacific? Local. Like if I was in okay, cool. yeah, uh, yeah. Manila, 5 a.m. Manila time. If I was in Johannesburg, cool. 5 a.m. Johannesburg time. I think that I find that I am more calm and capable when I have a lot of extra time in the morning to get ready. And when I'm really hustling to try to get going. Um, but 
it's all dependent on what I'm doing that day, I guess. If I have a work commitment that starts at seven, I'll be up at five. If I have an evening commitment, I know that night, maybe I'll sleep in because I do care about trying to get that eight hours. It's a priority. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was thinking about this the other day, but I would love functionality on my iPhone to be able to set alarm clocks that are reflexive to the sunrise. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. So like, say like I, I would always love to wake up 15 minutes before the sunrise because the winter time, like I usually build my schedules so that I'm up with the sun and then I'm up usually later. Cause I like in the winter time, I like kind of feeling like I'm hibernating and working late. And then I can also wake up late. Um, but in the summertime of, even if I'm waking up at like seven and I'm exhausted, like I still feel like I've not wasted some of the day, but like, I'm just like leaving time on the table. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. I used to really love an indulgent oversleep. And nowadays, if I wake up at 10, I feel like I really lost out on something. I missed out on something. For sure. For I sure. Guess that's part of getting and, older. Yeah. I mean, so, so I'm, I used to be the go to bed late, wake up early, pretend that you're going to wake up early and then like snooze for three hours and get out of bed, which ends up those three hours of sleep is never as good as just sleeping an extra one hour of real sleep, anyways. Um, but with the girlfriend and the horse farm, she's, she goes to bed at like, 9 30 and wakes up at like 5 36 which is like great because she's always getting like eight and a half nine hours of sleep which is awesome but like i used to think going to bed before 10 was the dumbest thing in the world and i started doing it recently and i was like this is great like i'm just asleep you know because there's rarely good things that happen that late especially in the west coast so yeah I, for me i like to spend a lot of time outside I, I like to i live right now right by the ocean and so i like to jump in the ocean when there's waves, I like to surf. That's really changed my orientation. When I was a, a teenager and in my 20s, I was the last guy at the bar a lot of nights. Not not because of yeah. like a, um, debaucherousness, but because that was where there was like frenetic energy and ideas being exchanged. And, you know, I like to be out. I'd be out drinking coffee, you know, playing chess, drinking beers. Yeah. Yeah. But the the interesting thing about that that I've been thinking about recently is like, some of my best ideas and tangents have come from late night work, but rarely if ever is the legwork that gets that thing done all done during the night as well. Right. It takes days, you know, and that's what I've been thinking about recently, which is like sometimes I'll get in a creative mode where I only know exists between like 11 PM and four in the morning for me. Like I can't find that at any other time of day. And like I have to find those. Right. Yeah, I totally relate to that. I, I find that I really struggle to be capital P productive between the hours of nine and five. That's mostly, unfortunately for me, it's reactive time for me, um, where I feel like there's calls coming in or meetings that I have to be there for. Um, and so nine to five, I don't get serious work done. And then I'm given the option of before nine, or after five. And and a lot of the time after five is great. Like I'm really excited this afternoon to just sit in this office and, and work into the evening on some some writing that I have to do for a project I'm involved with. Yeah. Um, and that's like, a, it'll be, you know, nobody's gonna be bugging me tomorrow's Saturday and I can just really think through how to present this product that I'm working on. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting, you know, you hit a special reserve time in your career or in life when you can like just be super content, just being looking forward to like just getting things done. 
right? You're like, oh, I just have the next, it excites me now, right? I'm like, do I have six hours to get all these things done? And when you get them done, it's great, but when you don't get them done, it's awful. So, so um, are, you a, are you a checklist person? Do you write notes? Like how do you, how do you stay on top of making sure you get everything done? Like what is your you know, modus operandi? So I use a combination of two software products, uh, Notion mm-hmm. and Airtable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Airtable is really helpful for me collaboratively. Um, it lets other people kind of know what I'm doing. And then when I'm on teams with people, I can also kind of track what either I've delegated to people or whatever. Um, and then uh, Notion is kind of within projects sometimes, a way that I can kind of lay things out sort of differently. My Airtable is a disaster. <laughs> a lot of the time, like there'll be like 70 active tasks. And mm-hmm. what I've noticed is if I have these little drop down bars, so yeah. um, I'm working on a on an experience attraction in New Orleans. Um, hasn't been announced yet, but it's gonna be like a big interactive uh, experience that people can come and buy tickets to. Um, and all that work gets done. I have this soil business that I'm working on. All that work gets done. But when I have something that says personal on that drop-down tab, that'll stay on the air table for eight months, hmm. 16 months, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to work on that. That's my, yeah. that's my new thing. On, on my worst days, I end up, I, I usually have a notepad next to my computer and I end up just jotting things down because I don't even have time to get over to Airtable and add things. Yep. Um, but I'm also trying to migrate out of that modality, you know? Yeah. What about you? I use a software called Things. <laughs> it's, it's made by this Things. It's just called Things. And and Daniel will see. I'm gonna interrupt you. I feel like I feel like you're my cool software friend really? that like knows about the software before everyone else. And I hear about it from you, and then I, I adopt to it, and other people, you know, copy me. Yeah, that's. You know? I think that's partially cor- not correct or incorrect, but I I do get that vibe. My my uh, I get a lot of my mom or from a couple of other friends I have that like my software friends that are like ahead of the curve. They're trying like beta one point two of something. Um, so, you know, uh, just to kind of break things down. So, so the first thing I mentioned is that I, I have show notes. So all the different types of software or things that were mentioned that are referenceable, I will link below. So if you know, it's me typing off, it's because I'm typing the list of, for people to be able to reference. So don't worry about pausing the podcast friends and finding it. I'll, I'll make it easy for you. But things is, so I tried Basecamp. I tried Notion. I tried Apple Reminders. I tried, you know, even the, tasks which is a terrible microsoft one that's the worst of all of them for to-do lists um but i just wanted something that was really like the exemplification of like a, a proper paper like just notepad but it was done in like a very clean ui so things is very much just a a task-based to-do list but you can it's very powerful in terms of how you split it up in like different categories and you can have projects and you can add notes and references but like it doesn't let you add images or collaborate with people. It's just all about yourself and setting your goals and writing your ideas. So it ends up, it's really turned into like, not only things that have to get done, but like an active runway list of all the ideas I have, the things I want to work on, things I have to get done. So, so really it helps me index things and it really focuses less on how it gets done and more on when you're going to get it done, which I think is the more important part of it. Um, and I think 
what the future is, is this app called Ami, A-M-I-E, which you can actually beta right now. But it's an idea where you have your calendar and a to-do list. And the idea is that you add like an estimated amount of time you think each to-do has, which is hard for some things, right? Because some of the creative tasks, like you could hit, uh, you know, if you're writing, as I'm sure you know, like you could hit the right node and in 20 minutes, bang it out, or it takes you two days. You know, you never really know fight for creative work. But the cool thing about it is you kind of give it a set amount of time and you drag it to do this item onto your calendar to block that time to work on that. And then if you don't do it, you pull it back off of the view. So basically it's kind of like, it's this, it's this multi-world of both. Um, I don't like that because I like the freedom of like things change throughout the day. And sometimes I just let my mind go and feel, but I think part of my morning is figuring out what I have to do that day and then trying to build this roadmap. And the good days I get it all done and more and the bad days I get like half, but not even a fifth of it done. Right. Um, but things, yeah, things is real. I like that time blocking element. That's really nice. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to put things on my Google calendar and move them around, but it is, uh, it's labor. Oh, yeah. It takes it, it takes time. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Yeah. I think it's just trying to remove that friction, right? Or because I think some people want to, it, it's basically fixing, I think, the biggest problem with the do list is that you could have five items in the do list. One of them could be something that takes a minute, one of them could take something that takes 10 hours, and they both take up the same amount of space. And so the idea is actually, adding that space-time component to it, which I think is important. Um, but, yeah. yeah. I think I read somewhere, too, that people are often most likely to try to attack the things that they can do the quickest. Correct. And usually the most important tasks are not that. Mm. So people are cycling through their to-do list and just getting through these five, 15-minute tasks. And then that 45-minute or that three-hour task that actually could really change their life, change yeah. their business, change their personal life, change whatever, mm-hmm. just sits there. For sure. You know? Um, yeah. I, I think for me, I got in such a, a driven mode with getting things done and knocking them off a list. Like I got an enjoyment out of doing it. So sometimes if I absolutely hated something. I'd at least be like, well, I get to check it off my list and I know I have to do it. So I didn't have to be on here. So I try to always start off every morning by like, it depends on what it is. If something is like pressing, weighing in my head or like it's a client deadline, like I'll work on that first always. But otherwise, if I have flexibility, I'll try to get the easy ones done first. So I at least get some momentum going. Right. Because sometimes it's hard. Like, if you have a big task you have to do and you start spluttering around and failing at it, you have to go take breaks and maybe go work out or clear your head. And the other little things are just waiting. Sometimes it'd be easier just to get the little, to get the stuff that you've done, you know, you can get done quickly and then save time for that. But it's very easy, as you said, to like go do that for eight hours and then come back and be like, I got a lot done. But like the one thing that actually is going to progress my career and life forward, I didn't touch, which is the problem. Right. So. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to be at a, a stage in my life where I even have any control over any of this at all. You know, yeah. I, I think we should both give ourselves a gold stars or something. Oh yeah. Um, a lot of people can't manage an inbox, yeah. you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the big thing I always tell people is like, people ask me, apparently I think I'm not organized. People are like, oh, you seem organized. And I just basically, I have a system that I've been iterating since college. Uh, so I guess for close to 10 years now um, of how I work. And every time I find something new, I try to, it's like always improving. Like, and I think that's the biggest thing is like as technology advances, there are things that we can do now that we weren't able to do a year ago, especially with things like ChatGPT and other things like that, that really can save time and make everything better. And so I'm just continuing with building a system. Like I just started using 
cal.com to like block out my calendar, which like some people hate the like calendar link to like, Oh, block, block, block time on my schedule. And it feels kind of cheap. And I get that. But also like with the podcast is a good example. Finding a, a shared two hour block of time between two busy people is nearly impossible. Right. And so what I realized is that I was spending about two hours a week, just finding blocks of time that ended up would never pan out. And I was just like, why don't I just open up my schedule and anyone can come and do it. And I was able in like a week to like nail down like the eight podcasts in three weeks that like I've been trying to record for months. Right. Um, so I think it's all about removing friction with yourself and with others. Right. It's bizarre to me that anyone would be offended that you're saving them these human hours of going back and forth endlessly with emails, proposing that two and three times at a pop. Yep. And it, or, or that you would expect that somebody have an admin do that, mm-hmm. you know, which is the, the way that I kind of came up. Um, people having these admins that were scheduling each other. Gatekeepers. Yeah. No, but I mean, not even just the gatekeeper, just like so those people could be playing clarinet or learning Mandarin or solving complex problems, whatever they want to be doing. They could be doing something else. Um, it's weird that we, want to burden people with those things because of some sense of politeness, like that mm-hmm. you would bounce someone to an automated form, yeah. which is the cleanest, most efficient way to get through it somehow bothers them and feels impersonal. Yeah. And so I really never liked Calendly because of like the people I always like associated with Calendly and, you know, there was a couple. And so Cal, I, I was reading an interview with uh, like Farnham street, which is like one of those like philosophy type, like cool blogs about everything from, I guess, philosophy to, productivity to everything but i was reading this interview and i didn't i didn't know who it was but i'm a big believer now in like if it's if it's from someone i trust i'll at least give it a chance because even though i might not know who they are they something that can impact my thinking or something new and ended up being the ceo of cal.com and i like we have to say about like his ethos for why he built it um and so i was like i'll give it a try because i hated calendly and i liked it so much because like i'm able to say for the podcast for example like anyone can request it but i have to approve it so people can't just like come in there and like start placing podcasts on my schedule. Like I can't have a random person just find my link and be like, I want to be on the podcast because I don't want that. Right. And then the biggest thing I worried about is like someone popping a meeting in my calendar last minute when I already planned to do something else at that time. Like that's the worst thing in the world. So I like can set like basically gatekeepers for every single type of meeting, basically say like, Oh, within this amount of time up to the event, I have to approve it manually. Like there are many little nuanced things I can do for every little thing that made it so, so easy for me to just feel like it was still my time, you know? Um, but I know I'm on a tangent, so I apologize. Yeah, it's, like, uh, it's like an Airbnb reservation, an Airbnb host, but the Airbnb is just your attention. Pretty much. Um, yeah. Because, because seriously, like sometimes like I may have that 30 minutes in the, in the middle of the, the morning or the late at night that most people wouldn't think I'm around, but that's the time I'd actually rather get a meeting done, you know? And that's the big thing is like totally having to think ahead. And like, I, I, I've heard the argument, like you don't want to give away your time, right? You don't want people to be able to access your time freely, but I don't think that's what this is. You know, I'm just trying to increase lower friction and increase effectiveness with communication. Right. Um, it's hard for me to imagine these um, people just roaming the internet with looking for Calendly links that they can take. Like, I don't know who that person is or how low their own self-valuation of, of their time inventory is. Yeah. But they're like, you know what? I'm just going to try to hop on other random people's calendars and see if I can get mm-hmm. some time with that. I, I'm certainly not 
yeah. at this point in my life and career uh, in a place where I would, I would imagine I'm a target for that. I, I do know that there are people that want my attention and I interact with them and they email me and they LinkedIn message me and they either have something they want to sell me or they want me to hire them or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so there is some demographic that does want my attention. But I, I, it's hard for me to imagine those people also being brazen enough to do that. But who knows? You know, Look, my whole thing like is a small price to pay. Yeah, if if they're brazen enough to go, it's it's all relative, right? If some some people will bother me continuously, and I just don't have the time to to figure out if it's real or not. But if they like were to place a fifteen minute quick connect, like here's my phone number, give me a call when you can. I'd I'd I'd, I'd give them a call. Why not? But if they're going to be like, I want an hour and a half of your time, and I want you to hire me, it's like no, go fuck yourself. Um, and you can block people on cal.com. So I'm really happy about that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, anybody that's that committed to wanting to talk to me, I probably want to talk to you back. Anybody sure. that's that certain that they have something that I need or that I can help them, they could probably help me. That's, well, that's my guess. Yeah. You know me, I'm nothing if not persistent. So, um, so I, th I think you said it once where I was kind of following up a lot and you were like, you said something between, it was like, meant to be like, I know some people might find this abrasive, but I actually really appreciate the level of follow-up that you have. Um, and it pisses a lot of people off, but like in the long run, they're all thankful for it because most people do forget, which is for, or like, just need, like sometimes the, the constant bird just gets the worm, right? Like I've, I've given out work because I'm sure you have, I just, that person is just constantly interested in doing, it. you know, less people who are like, oh yeah, just hit me up when it's ready. You know, who cares? So. Yeah. It's a, there's, there's some sort of a fine line. I, I hear people who sell things talk about like the volume game. Mm. You just knock on enough doors and, and I, I don't, I don't subscribe to that idea on the things that I sell, but I, I do think that, I mean, you really do it beautifully. And I, and, and when I said that to you, I meant it as a compliment because the tempo at which you do it mm. is really great. It isn't like, um, I wrote you today and then three days later I wrote you again. And then five days from it, 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 there was like, it was actually exactly when you were at that outer periphery <laughs> of my mind that you would pop back up. Yeah. And I, I think you should feel good about that. Yeah. Um, but I also like asking people for things is hard mm. and everyone in the world who does anything interesting and cool on their own, I emphasize the on their own, had to ask so many people for things to get there. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So it's like, figure it out. Like, learn how to do it. Learn how to, and, and do it with great. Like, you do it with so much grace. Like, if someone says, no, fuck off, I'm sure you fuck off. I'm sure you don't bother them again. You know? And I doubt that happened. I, I, I give it a, so if they're going to fuck off, that to me means I wait about 15 months and I'll come back. And, and like, you'd be amazed, no, no, seriously, you'd be amazed about people who are like, all right, I'll give it a shot, you know, because, because, you know, 15 months, enough time for you to forget someone exists and then like, you know, get married, change lives and have a baby. It's a long time, you know? So if someone's rude about it or mean about it, no. But if someone's just like, Hey man, not interested, sorry, can't talk. That to me is, that's a, that's a very nice fuck off, but that's like a, I'm still going to come back in a while, like a while, like you're going to forget I existed and then I'll come back. And then by then, hopefully, you know, if I'm being really smart, if it's, if it's something I really want, I will find other work like it. And then I will come back and say, hey, you've actually done work like this. Can you, what do you think? And both usually like, oh, okay, well, cool. let's go, you know? Um, and that's just me playing games. I love that. 
right? But I think I, 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 I was thinking about this as we were talking about it. I think I made this connection for the first time. I think I tell, because I've had a couple of young entrepreneurs ask me the question, like, what is the best way to do follow-up? And like, how do you find that balance? And I think I only learned it from one thing, which is going to sound crazy, but you know exactly what I mean. I think it's from being on dating apps in New York City for like four or five years from like basically playing this constant game where I had to basically always follow up at just the right time in order to be like not, because if you do it too soon, it comes off as creepy or, or needy, right? If you wait too long, it comes across like the person is like second choice, right? What's that in between of like fitting the right gap and knowing that someone is probably most likely going to be free and interested, right? And I think that same psychology can be used for business and friendships and relationships and everything, right? So. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the different silos of sort of outreach that I do and where it's like someone has all of the power and I'm like really asking them for something from like a position where it's like, it's just a pure ask. Yep. I need X from you. There's no, there's no, I give you Y for X. I just need X, you know? And then there's these kind of like closer to equivalent positions. And then there's positions where like, I know that I have something that somebody wants. So I feel like I'm pretty likely to get what, what I want out of it. Um, and it's interesting to think about how much energy sometimes in the, the middle of that, the range where it's like the other person has more agency or power than I do. And I really want the thing, mm -hmm. how much energy I put into worrying, unnecessarily worrying about asking them this question that my worry has no impact on the outcome. Yeah. So, so by getting used to asking the question, even though that like it's hard because then you're you're out there and then once you have an outcome, at least sometimes for 15 months, you can't change it. You know, like it's like they said no. Um, but just getting used to doing that is is such an important part of my career today. Getting used to knocking on the door and saying, Hey, I would like X, Y, or will you come work with me on this? Mm -hmm. Or will you hire me to do this? Or will you hire this person that I'm working with to do this? Yeah. You know, can I give you a presentation about something? Um, yeah. getting used to doing that and, and not hating yourself. I feel like that's like a year of someone's life growing professionally, just yeah. like where, where you just like inhabit that space where you're like, oh, okay, I can do this. And it, and it's actually acceptable because I think we're, we're conditioned socially. Like it's not like it's, what are you selling something, you know? Yeah. But well, I mean, everybody I, is selling. Everybody is truly selling something, right? At least ourselves. Um, as friends, as lovers, as workers, as whatever. Uh, I'll use a very recent live example. I have a client that I've, I worked with. So the model for my uh, studio, and I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but essentially like we work with a lot of early stage startups and they usually need a lot of help. And like, I call it pitch deck adjacent. Could be the pitch deck, could be related to fundraising, could be related to building a company. It's like everything that needs to go into that, which most people, if you've never worked in a pitch deck before, you have no idea what we're talking about, but like it is... It seems simple. It is the least simple thing in the entire world. And it's like half lying, half creativity, half bullshit, half beauty, right? Which is like, that's four halves make a whole, right? For a pitch deck. Um, but so I worked with them and they managed to raise like all the money they need and more. And so they were like, the model is usually like, 
we help you get the money and then we get more work from that money because we want to do more stuff. And so I had a handshake agreement with them. We were going to start working, but because this company is like the second iteration, like they fired the first CEO who lost a lot of the money and now they have real money in their biggest earth. They're taking so long to make sure that the money is going perfectly where it needs to go. I almost think it's too long. Right. And so with the CEO, I think, on Monday, I sent my fourth follow-up since I'd heard from him over like a month long period. And I'm getting to the end where like, I've never experienced this before. Where like, I've talked to the CTO in the company. They said they're still good, but the CEO is like, he's just not responding. He's reading the emails. He's just not responding. And it's freaking me out a little bit because it's like, this is a company trajectory changing amount of work, right? For me and my guys and girls and friends. Um, but yeah, so it's it's hard because like I'm at that point now where like I'm getting to my limit of comfortability with how I follow up, and this is the first time I've really tested my system, and it's it's nerve wracking, man. So, well, that's interesting too because it's um, sometimes it's harder once you're winning a little bit, like you haven't closed, but you're getting some traction, and maybe you've gone back and forth three or four times, and maybe you had a really disposable way of thinking about the asks earlier on. And now there's a relationship yeah. and you feel like you're jeopardizing the relationship. You don't want to be too pushy and you've, you've maybe even valued that relationship in a CRM or something. And you said, hey, this relationship could be worth X number of dollars to me and my business. Mm -hmm. And for me, the thing that really helps me, because I, I struggle with that, is believing in the underlying thing that I'm doing. Mm -hmm believing in the value of the underlying thing, but also believing in the importance of it. So like for you, you're giving this team of incredible creatives work and jobs and a way to support themselves, Yeah, you know? And so like you carry that with you as you continue to push this relationship with this very uh, frugal due diligence intensive party that you're hopefully going to close, hopefully. you know? Yeah. I know for me, I, I can't do it the other way though. Mm. I can't, it's interesting. I've, I've learned this about myself. If you were like, hey, we've got widgets. Can you go sell these widgets? And, um, sorry, there's a siren. I'm You're not good. sure picking that up. A little bit. Okay. Um, all right, here's, here's these widgets. And if you go sell these widgets, you'll make $20 million a year and you'll be stoked. Um, and I didn't believe in the widgets. Like, I couldn't do it, you know? Mm -hmm. I couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, yeah. When you say widgets to people that are listening, what do you exactly imply? Like tools Just like or any generic thing that I don't care about or know about or believe in. A widget. Life insurance policy. Got it. I got a good friend who makes a lot of money selling life insurance. high net worth people life insurance policies. I have no interest. Yeah. I could not. He's incredible at it. And I could not do it. You know? Look, I, but I can do yeah. really weird stuff mm -hmm. where I convince people to get involved in something that is yeah. kind of outlandish, like, no. a, like a worm business. Yeah, you, you and I can um, sell when the when the money matters, right? But like that, like not even money matters, when, when the thing matters, right? Like, so I have a friend who did like door-to-door -door solar sales during the boom, a couple of like pre-COVID, and he made seven figures a year doing that. And it was all day grueling, sweaty, constant work. And the money's great, but it's just something I would ever be interested in doing. And when he told me, he's like, He's like, I see you crushing over here, not making that much money, like building for something that might not work out. 
but like, dude, you could be making easily seven figures doing this. And I was like, I don't want to. Like, I'd rather make $70,000 a year than seven figures if I was like actually adding value to something I want to do. Not forever. That's not sustainable, right? At least in the world I live in. But um, I think you know exactly what I'm saying. So, yeah. Well, I think we're both talking about impact. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the thing. Legacy. I, I've been stuck. I've been, I've been stuck in, in this modality my whole life. And I felt shame around it for a long time, but now I've come to kind of embrace it, which is I, I mostly um, exist on an existential plane, yeah. but the actual sort of like moment to moment components of life are kind of less interesting to me. I can get interested in tactics, but usually I'm interested in tactics because I have this bigger goal that I, I want to execute. And a lot of the time that goal is about taking care of people. Yeah. Um, really specifically. So like I had a business where I was I was kind of functionally an agent, like I was a sales rep for creatives for a while. Yeah. And I could not sell, I couldn't bring myself to sell talented creatives I didn't like. Mm. If you were incredibly easy to sell, you had a great body of work and you were really easy to sell. Um, but I didn't like you as a person. I didn't think you were a good person. I couldn't do it. And then if there were people that were really kind of um, challenging to present in the marketplace, didn't have an adequate body of work or really nation specific, but I believed in them as, uh, on this human level and I connected to them, I could easily do it. And, I, and I, I, not only could I easily do it, I broke through barriers other people didn't believe we could break through with those people in their careers yeah, because of my underlying convictions that I, I cared about them and I wanted to do this thing for them. Hmm. And I hated that about myself for a really long time. I wanted to be the guy making seven figures, selling solar panels or widgets or whatever. It, it, it made me feel foolish yeah. to be the way that I am, but it's shaped my life in this way that I'm super grateful for now. Hmm. Totally. Right. There's, there's always the, the people I'd looked up to or even hated um, it's either one of the two in high school and college that went on to do these ridiculous things and get their companies acquired by someone that was actually cool, even their product was shit and worthless and never made it into the real company. But like, I was like, damn, like that sounds like fun. But I was like, look, like, I don't know. I think, I think I'm a strong believer in this idea that if you keep almost in a Sisyphusian way, smashing into that ridiculous thing you're trying to build, even if you get close to it, like people will recognize that and reward you along the way. And in the long span, like, that's the one thing is like most people need to work for dozens of years to have a pretty decent life and do what they want to do. Right. You and I work in a world where all we need is one key moment that can literally alter the reality for the rest of our family for eternity, you know, um, and by adding value to other people's lives. Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely true on the financial side. And I completely agree. I think one of the things that I find really interesting is I'm, I'm 41 years old and I'm at a point now in my life where there are some of my friends who founded meaningful things and built generational wealth on an exit. And all of those people almost immediately founded new meaningful things. Yeah. Not because of the casino element, not because they were like trying to go make generational wealth, mm -hmm. but because it's actually about 
in order to win, it has to be about the process. Absolutely. If you don't love the process, I think it's nearly impossible to win. And once you've crossed that barrier and you love the process, you're just going to repeat it. And actually, I think at a point, um, the money becomes more of a problem Agreed. for some people than, yeah. than a, than a blood. And I'm definitely not there. So like, I'm not going to speak out of turn, but I do know these people who, you know, they hit eight figures or whatever. And, you know, it, it's like their place socially within their community changed because of that mm -hmm. in a way that was actually very expensive for that. Oh yeah. You know, people always ask um, for money. Very isolated. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, yeah, I, I think I think Deval said it best. He's like, you, I'd rather be rich and anonymous than poor and famous, right? Because um, I think that that's and when I meant like life changing impact to family, I wasn't just necessarily giving wealth. I was saying like sometimes an invention an invention can have that like just the purpose of it itself, you know, um, in a positive or negative way. Like any of the Zuckerberg kids are not going to be remembered that their dad was a had a ton of money. They're going to be remembered probably in a negative way for other things, right? Um, you know, same thing with the Musk kids, right? Like they're, it's, it, it's depending on whether or not they believe in what Elon was doing, you know, or is doing, right? Yeah, I think there's two parts to that that are interesting to me to think about. One is the the impact of the companies or the products on society. You know, we can talk about the, the fractured attention span of the world now mm -hmm. and how many severe mental health problems we have because of our digital addiction. Um, but I think that the habits that those people had, the, the approach that they brought to living their lives, hopefully mm -hmm. gave their, like just by being in a household with that, where you see someone that sets a goal and then works towards it in an organized systemic way, I, I would hope that that has positive impact on those people, but I don't know. Mm. You know, I, I think for me, I, I grew up in this sort of weird way. My dad got sick and died when I was a kid. And I've always imagined this counterpoint life. I've always imagined the life where I had this like um, nuclear family and this really together person, this like patriarch um, who, who like really understood the way the world worked and was, was rising to the occasion. And I've, and I've worked really hard to try to become something like that myself, although I don't have a family or yeah. whatever. But I guess when I, when I hear you talking about that, it's funny because immediately my mind goes to, well, they saw what a person who knows how to work really hard looks like, hmm. you know? And they learned from that about, because when I think about the amount of stress that I feel sometimes in my body that I have to manage, with the tiny little things on global scales that I'm working with, you know, things that are seven figures, right? I'm, yeah. I'm managing a million dollars, I'm managing three million, like whatever it is. And you compare that to like, you know, a trillion dollar business. And, like, but it, it's it's a skill, right? Yeah. It's that that person has figured out a way mm -hmm. to <laughs> understand what things are yeah. around them. And handle. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's one of my favorite arguments where, like, uh, someone will say, uh, "Oh, the CEO of Company X made you know 
687 times more than the lowest paid employee. I doubt they add 687 times as much value. And I always go, they do. At most, most of them do, right? I, do I think that CEOs are overpaid? Absolutely, they are. But at the end of the day, like if you have someone who's running a trillion dollar or multi-billion dollar enterprise, like that is not it's running it well. Let me just put that little asterisk on there. And running it successfully where it's adding value to not only shareholders or to individual employees there and actually making products that matter. Like that is a ridiculously stressful and insanely incapable job to 99.999999% of the population that it, it can't be done by anyone. You know, like that's just my belief, right? Like I look at... Oh, Keep going. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, no, but like I, I look at Tim Cook as a great example, right? He he is someone who built Apple's supply chain from scratch. And one could argue like after Jobs as being like the most important person to Apple, it's probably him and Tony Fidel in my mind in like the 90s onward that like made Apple what it was. Johnny Ives in the top five as well. But like Tim Cook built the entire supply chain that allows Apple on an almost crazy, obviously non-sustainable scale to like make these ridiculously premium devices at a price that considering what you're getting is actually pretty affordable um, on a global scale to millions and millions and millions of people on time that work, that get their job done, right? Like that is insane when you think about it. Like I, I have a friend who works at Apple on a, on, on a team, he runs a team that works on a component of a subsystem, of a subsystem, of a subular system of one of the main systems, the iPhone, Right. And there are thousands of people, brilliant people, that spend their entire lives making one little thing alongside thousands of other people to make sure everything works. And there's one person that's overseeing that happening at 30 times at all the same time around the world. And that to me is like, not everyone can do that. And that's why like, I don't really have a problem with it personally. But, you know, people are probably going to yell. Right yeah, now. I think what people <laughs> have a problem with the relative compensation it's the precarity of the existence of every man in mm. U.S. society. Like, I think, I think that actually, if you start to dissect this, um, a the more you do, the and the more access you have to people that are doing really cool things, well, totally. the more understanding you have how freaking hard it is. So, so, so hard. Yeah, but. The idea that, you know, a couple of minutes ago, just to echo something you said back to you, you were like, well, earning $70,000 a year isn't sustainable in the world that you live in. And I think, I think I saw something that was like the average American believes that they need $11 million or, or something. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, and, and that to me is insane. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that the things that we have, I, I live in California, I'm constantly out in the street seeing people living in a way that I really don't want to live. Yeah. And I am afraid to end up that way. Mm -hmm. I, am a, I think we all feel like there's this permeable membrane that we're on one side of by a hair, by this tiny thin hair. Um, and we don't want to be on the other side of that membrane in squalor and despair. Yeah. And I, I think that I agree with that. I agree that we should not have a society where the, it's either you're, um, you know, working at Apple or working at Google, or you're living in squalor and despair. Yeah. And I think we need to address that. Mm -hmm. But I also agree that um, 
these few elite people that build a lot of value for humanity, mm-hmm. not just for like the American economy or for their shareholders. Yeah. But like you think about the quantity of value that iPhone has given the globe. Yeah. I, I think you, if economists were to sit down and look at it, it's yeah. indisputable. It's a lot. For sure. It's a lot. People yeah. have a, a timer and they can get direction. They're in a foreign country. They can get things translated in real time. You know, it, it's, it's, they a can make a living powerful tool. Yeah. Right. Like, it makes their lives better. Makes, makes it like, and I think, I think Musk is someone that like, in my mind, the more controversial they are while they exist in like the pop culture sphere, like the more remembered they'll probably be positively. Right. Like, and not always in a good way. So let me kind of add an asterisk. Right. Like, I don't think Donald Trump will be remembered in a good way based on what he did and how he's remembered. But I think someone like Elon Musk, who is very controversial, like overall, people will be like, he might be irrational, maybe wasted some money on Twitter or X. We'll see. I think it personally will probably work out in the end for him somehow because he's just, I, I think when I hear people complain about Elon, people just don't understand. They're either downplaying something he's done or they just don't understand him and as someone who's also like on the asperger spectrum like i see some of the irrational things he says or does and i get it i'm like it's it's not it's him but it's not him he's just being compulsive unfortunately every single thing he does every step he takes every fart he has is like recorded shared and blogged about right and so like if you were to fall like what's that saying if you follow anyone if a cop follows anyone for 200 miles they're gonna get pulled over right? Like it's impossible to like, you know, you're always going to do everything perfect, right? It's just that there are difference between people who build systems off of exploiting other people. Like Zara is a good example of a, a company that's just like using child labor, using, you know, sweatshops around the world, making clothing cheaply, that's putting microplastics into our water systems that doesn't last more than a few wears. That's just buying into this fast fashion and like consumer spending behavior environment like that is like i don't look at zara and be like wow they're adding a lot of value i'm like no that's a good version so it's not right but for every zara there's an apple or a tesla or i mean even facebook in a way what it does right yeah i mean it one of the things that's interesting to me there's like this court of public opinion and then what you were just talking about how will Elon Musk be remembered? Mm-hmm. And I guess the question that I would ask um, to couple with that is for how long will Elon Musk be remembered? Long time. I, there, I, it's possible that he's going to be um, a Carnegie or a Ford or whatever, and he will live on yeah. for a couple hundred years. You know, I can't name... Um, Roman emperors, <laughs> many, many people were in huge positions of power on this planet yeah. um, in, a, in an era when there was a lot less media saturation, a lot less noise. The signal to noise ratio was, was lower. Um, so I guess that's a question for us as entrepreneurs and as people that are trying to be change makers in the world is what's the metric that we're holding ourselves up to? Mm. And how do we refine that? You know? Yeah. And, and for me, it, it's like, no matter what I do, some group of people are going to judge it and hate it. Yeah. You know? That's and also, no matter what I do, the, the earth is going to fucking burn up and die. Mm-hmm. 
and there will cease to be people to remember me. So sometimes, again, here I am on the existential space that I have no choice but to exist in. It, it's like th there becomes a really interesting kind of question for myself, which is, can I explore and exemplify values and shape things in a way that I hope might help suffering mm -hmm. for some duration of time? You know, and that yeah. can be on an individual level, which is something I put a ton of emphasis on in the last few years. Mm -hmm. I care a lot about like duty and friendship and family showing up for, you know, or that can be on a professional level where it's like, you know, you're working with companies and you pick these companies partly because of their potential. I see that. But you also seem to pick these companies because of their impact, yeah. because they can help humanity and make the world a better place. And I really admire that about you. Thank you. You know? Yeah, so so the modus operandi of a focal my studio is it has to be either for the advancement of exploration or the human species, and if it doesn't help those two things, and those are pretty large categories, but like for example, if Zara ever hit me up, I would tell him to go fuck off. Right? I don't care how much money it's for. Like I just have no interest. In it. Um, I actually had a podcast guest in the past. I won't even say that much because I'd probably give it away. But like. I mentioned Zara in a negative way on that podcast in like a rant against fast fashion. And like I had to trim that clip out if I wanted to use the podcast because they recently signed a contract with Zara, you know, and because it like it was, it couldn't go out. And so that, that was the kind of thing where I was just yeah. like, look, like I'll do it because the rest of the conversation was so good. And I'm like, I'm not going to ruin a conversation because of that. And I was like, I'll respect contracts. That's like, I never want to fuck with someone else's money, like, or, 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 or prestige or valor or work. Like, you know, something I don't agree with, like, I think OnlyFans is a great example of something that's very like uh, people either are for it or very much against it, right? Like for my, my whole thing is like, if it's your body and it's completely consensual and you're doing what you want, like go for it. Like if you want to make money, do it. I go for it. Like I don't care. You know, some people will go to the end of the day and be like, it's not right or bring them to get about religion or purity or, you know, back to our Puritan values of society, which just ends up messing up more people than helping. But like at the end of the day, like my big thing is that you didn't have to decide who you want to work with. And now, you know, I would rather wait for the right opportunity. And I know I, I'm the kind of person where I believe that, like, if I set up, this is my ethos, this is what I believe, and I keep marching towards that eventually, eventually I'll find the right people that will help me create what I need to create, right? It may take a long time. It may not take a very long time. But, like, I, I, I'm a big believer that if you want something and you keep working at that every single fucking day, I mean, look at this podcast. Look at the magazine. Right. Like I, I said, I was like, I'm going to do it. And people were like, you're crazy. It's not going to work. Like, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to meet people. You're not going to build an audience. No one wants to read paper. That's in 23. No one. It's like, I, I don't care. I'm going to do it. You know? And then once people, once you do it, people are like, Oh, okay. I guess it worked. And it's like, yeah, but that's, I like the iPod came. I'm not comparing my magazine to the iPod. No, no fucking way. But like, I think, you know what I'm saying? Right. It's just like, you know, that Steve Jobs quote where like it, all it takes is someone who, what's that i forget the way it's a really good quote and i don't want to butcher it but he says something along the lines of like sometimes the people that the world thinks nothing of that do the things that no one can think of something like that you know and i think like you know the musk the jobs the fidels the zucks the people like that and I'm, i know i'm mentioning mostly white men and i apologize i know there's many people of many different races and backgrounds and gender identities that i've all done great things it's just you know that's that, that's that's my reality. Like I'm, a, I'm a white male living in America. You know, like I grew up looking up to Steve Jobs because I saw I saw part of like what I wanted to be in him. You know, 
and that's I think that, that's important, right? Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. About your your Zara point. Mm -hmm. um, what are your first principles? Like, are you starting with like a Judeo Christian model? Like, wh where do you get the the foundational? moral uh framework mm. that you can then apply to things are good or bad because we can equivocate so easily right yeah it's like people who are like toxic tort yeah I, I defend asbestos oh that seems bad well i keep these corporations alive that are you know actually helping people now and that asbestos yeah. was a long time ago oh wait it's more confusing yeah you know <laughs> um yeah and like i'm always curious with people there's a high threshold of morality right now we live in a very moral time Cancel people are, are very into morality. Even what you just said, which is coming from a DEI place that I totally embrace and respect mm -hmm. and agree with. Um, you know, it's like what is what is founding those beliefs in yeah. our in our system right now? Because it seems like we're also in a sort of post God. I put that in quotes, air mm -hmm. quotes. I guess the audience at home can't see. It's in like a post God framework, a highly moral post God framework. So, what do you personally use as your first principle? The scientific method. The laws of physics, laws of dynamics. I'm, I'm not kidding. So, you know, I am someone that believes. So, just to break it down for anyone not familiar. So, in my mind, the scientific method, the very basic first principles thought is that um, if you have a hypothesis about something, you have to test it to see if it works. And once you test it, then you can understand it and then make a better hypothesis. And basically, you're constantly iterating to understand, right? That's like, in my mind, that's the basis of the scientific method, right? And then laws of physics combined with laws of thermodynamics and especially like entropy, which explains like, in my mind, makes me understand things like chaos and emotion and, you know, human behavior and, and other things like that. It all comes down to this. Like I'm a big believer in intent. I'm a big believer in belief. Um, I, at the longest time I was, you know, my parents were Episcopalian. I got brought to church school when they were up at mass. They're kind of, you know, like fair weather religious people, but, I was never into it. Like I like going to church because the snacks afterwards, my friends were there at the playground and I like, I love singing. So I love singing in the choir. Like I didn't care what the music was saying. It was just fun to match tones. Like some 60 year olds that were like belting opera, you know? Um, but, but for me, what it came down to is like, I never really, when I was young, I just couldn't believe that the entirety of the world was kind of dictated and made up by one individual. Like, to me, that just seemed like the most destructive idea in the world. Like, I don't care if they're the holiest, mightiest person. Like, I believe in, like, what we have as a construct of everyone, right? And, like, I think the view of religion is actually pretty limited. Like, you want to believe there's this one being or this deity or this entity, regardless if it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam, that, like, kind of created the subset of everything you exist, really? Like, that's what you want to believe? So, for me... You know, I was always like, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything. And then one of my best friends in college, because like I have a degree in rocket science. So like I love science. I love math at the base of this. And he said, you really, if you're a scientist, you deeply believe in scientific method. You should be, you should be agnostic because I don't have the data to disprove that there is a God, nor the data to prove that there is a God. So like I have to live in this quantum state of like, it could be, and I'm completely open to it. If like a God were to come down from the sky and smite me because of my beliefs, like I'd be like, that's pretty fucking cool. You know, <laughs> right? I do. I believe it's going to happen personally. No, but like, Hey, so I know that's a very long winded way. And I'd be curious to know your, well, you don't know. Yeah. It's an acknowledgement that you don't know for sure. And I think that's the basis of a lot of, I, I have a set of 15 ethos that I developed in 2015. So eight years ago, that kind of drive my life and my belief system. 
Um, and a lot of it's about self-control and understanding oneself and letting go of fear, letting go of desire to control things, believing in relationships, believing in people. I, I'm not a big loyalty person. I believe in merit. What I mean by that is like, I think loyalty is important. I'm not saying don't be loyal. What I'm saying is that like, if I'll, I'll give a good example. I have a friend and their dad is an absolute dick, right? And they feel like they have to listen to them because they're their dad. And I'm like, look, like it doesn't matter if it's your mom or your dad or your best friend that you grew up with or like your professor or your school bus driver. Like people have to earn that respect. People have to earn that right in your life. People have to earn that space in your head. It doesn't matter how close they are to you. If they don't earn that, if the merit isn't there, then don't give them the space, right? And I think so many people destroy their lives over loyalty, over merit right? Like some people stay in bad marriages because they don't want to be seen as someone gets divorced or like keep a friend because, oh, we've been friends since whatever. It's like, you know, like I, I believe in, I, I'm the person that's constantly evaluating relationships, whether it's with money or friends or belongings, because things change, people change. I think that's like, that's the fundamental idea is that like, you know, I'm not going to let a script written thousands of years ago that's mostly now embodied by a lot of people that are pretty intolerant um, in all sects of religion um, to tell them to do, right? Especially when they don't understand the base of their own religion. Like most people don't really, like, you know, what Christianity is an African religion, like it has its origins in Africa. Like it, it came from Ethiopia. It's not a white, like people's religion, you know? And that's the, ironic when you look at like some of the groups in the U.S. that tout Christianity that are like some of the racist, toxic cesspools of individuals, right? I know I'm going on a tangent now, but like, so I don't know. Right. But I'm curious about yours. Like what, like where, where do you, where do you think you build yours off of? I've been thinking about that a lot and trying to figure it out. And the closest I can come up with is love mm. that there are these radiating circles actually of love. And it's not just a blanket hippie answer. Actually, it sounds at first like it is, just a hippie, you got to love everybody. And I do, I do want to love everybody, which mm -hmm. is really hard for me. It doesn't come naturally to me. Um, but I think part of loving everybody is loving myself. Mm -hmm. So to counterpoint what you were just talking about with your friend whose dad's a jerk or people who are in abusive relationships, if you love yourself, you put yourself in safe places, yeah. in safe situations and safe dynamics. And, and then you have more power and agency to love other people. I think that you, you kind of have to um, start with you and then you can go to a small group of people and then you can go to a medium-sized group of people and then maybe you can go to some sort of a larger group of people, um, which is kind of like a ancient Greek idea mm -hmm. of approaching society. Um, but I think that for me, I grew up in the Judeo-Christian tradition with a Jewish father and a Christian mother. Mm -hmm. um, and I was exposed to the Bible in school. Um, and I read that text, um, like the Oxford Annotate. I read like a very kind of like um, academic version of that text. Um, and I also rejected the man in the sky theory. Yeah. I don't, I do not subscribe personally to the idea that there's some dude who's testing me. Yeah. on a daily basis and omnipotent right? but i yeah but i do feel in my body maybe even in my dna the the evolution of humanity 
that love serves us, mm-hmm. that we are a collective species and that we work collaboratively to do things that individuals can't do, kind of like an ant colony. Mm-hmm. And um, that requires structures. And I think often those structures get kind of perverse mm-hmm. and broken. And we have situations like uh, the way the United States was built with a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears of, mm-hmm. of people that didn't want to be a part of it. Situations like what happened in Nazi Germany. Yeah. Um, but I think because we're a collective species, our core is meant to take care of one another mm-hmm. and to take care of ourselves. So I think for me, um, I want to be in a place where I'm always looking at things with what is best for the people that I'm around me being including myself it's not a mother Teresa model um and uh that's something i'm still trying to fine tune and that's kind of as close as i can get Hmm. you know it's interesting because we have so much um desire to improve our society right now yeah and i think a lot of it's working you know but I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it is not connected to an understanding of where it comes from. It's not rooted. It's not grounded. And it's something that I hope we will have more clarity on, on a group level. Yeah. Because a lot of people spend a lot of time arguing because they haven't talked about first principles, you know? Mm-hmm. They don't want to build a foundation first. Yeah, come to a shared understanding, right? It's like, um, yeah. I, I think a good example, and I'm going to steal this from Naval, I've mentioned a couple of times, so I'll link him below, but he's talking about like, you know, half the time people are yelling in a room, they, they're all yelling about the same thing. You know, it's like, take gun control, for example, right? There's a group of people that are talking about like, the, the desire to have guns in case like a tyrannical power comes in and they can be able to rebel against that government. There's a group of people that just want to talk about like mental health crisis around school shootings. There's a group of the people in the middle that just want it for recreation, but they're all coming at it from the wrong side and not actually just agreeing upon the initial shared like ideas, right? I think even the most conservative gun-toting Republicans, just to kind of build that you know caricature for the sake of argument, you'd also find that they also don't want school shootings. Like just because someone wants guns doesn't mean they want school shootings. But I think is I think one of the problems that the left does, especially, and I say this as someone who's like a political and the fact that like, I don't believe in identity politics. Like I believe a lot of things very strongly, but I'm not going to like say like, hmm, I, I 61% align with this party. So I'm going to let them control a hundred percent of what I believe. Like that's nonsense. Like this country would be so much better if we just had like an open party system or not even parties at all. Just like, Hey, let's talk about, you know, let's, as you said, let's solve that 70% of the problems that are all like first principles reasoning and get things going. Like make sure people have food, make sure we're not, you know, incarcerating people improperly and make sure we're taking care of the bills and make sure we're not increasing our deficit and make sure that like, people can live a sustainable life, right? And then the more specific nuances, then we can we can argue those are the cows go. But like the problem is is that our government is being co-opted by terrorists. And when I say terrorists, I mean like people who want to they're all their all only motive is one specific ideology and they're willing to trash and hold hostage every other little thing, even the most basic necessities, just to see that 
be carried through, right? And I think that's the problem with a lot of things in modern society, right? People are willing to like, you know, sacrifice the whole for the deviance, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting when you look at everything that you just talked about through the lens of the advent of the internet. Mm. Because I, being my age, came of age during this great change. And I remember feeling hopeful in a way that I've only tasted during this one period of my life that was kind of like the 90s going into the early aughts. Yeah, the dot com. Where this information, like I grew up with an Encyclopedia Britannica. Me too. You know, I would want to know what a, a bonobo was and I would go get the B volume off and I would look it up. There were no hyperlinks. It was just, that was it. I got maybe a picture if I was lucky and a little description yeah. somebody had written. And so I had this idea that everything was going to get so much better. Mm -hmm. And social media, I think, and populist uh, uses yeah. of this infrastructure, because that's what it is, right? It's an infrastructural tool. Yeah. Um, but the, the populist uses of it did the opposite where we have information wars and everything's sort of fake news now and, and yeah. people don't trust each other and it's more polarized than it's ever been. But it's funny, you know, I, I am building this business, marketing permaculture solutions to consumers, trying yeah. to sell people better dirt that's better for the world. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about people buying dirt is they're everybody. Yeah. Everybody from every walk of life, every religion, yeah. every everything has some group of people in that demographic that grows food at home, mm -hmm. that grows tomatoes or strawberries, or maybe they just have a basil plant in their kitchen in their yeah. apartment in Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, they're an NPR listening, <laughs> uh, like Biden loving, liberal writing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all of those people buy dirt. Mm -hmm. All of those people, I think, also care about not getting cancer for sure they don't want to be exposed to or, harmful or, chemicals or not getting cancer for doing something as basic as growing their own basil for their pasta they make once a month right um yeah really. yeah so i'm sure and, I'm they, sure. and they care about go ahead so no, i was gonna say just just for the audience like kind of keying in because i know you and i get these like high level conversations so you know uh daniel's mentioned worm shit a couple times we're now gonna actually start talking about the worm shit he wasn't just saying worm shit as like a colloquial way of being like yeah and i do worm shit we're talking about worm shit okay continue to sorry yeah so i am selling a product called whoop that is uh what's often called either uh vermicompost or vermicast or mm -hmm. worm castings and it's been used by people for all of recorded history yeah. to rehabilitate soil and so you add this stuff the poop of worms mm -hmm. to your soil and it conditions your soil in a way that makes your soil ideal for growing certain sorts of plants yeah um a lot of the fruits and vegetables that we not all of them but a lot of them um and it doesn't require any chemicals you know it's not harmful to your kids and pets and it doesn't it doesn't wash away into the waterways it doesn't pollute our our rivers it doesn't bleach coral reefs it doesn't do all of these things that the industrialized ag complex mm -hmm. and their consumer products do. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a really interesting Cohen in this. There's like mm -hmm. a haiku in this. 
which is all of the prosperity that we see around us came up through this post-war era in the U.S. where we industrialized everything. And the scientific method, which you were just saying you believe in, and I also believe in, um, had a little bit of arrogance to the edge of it. Absolutely. Where it was like, hey, we realized plants really like nitrogen, phosphorus, and carbon. And we also really realized that insects don't like these compounds, these really complex compounds that don't exist naturally. So we're just going to give plants these three things, and then we're going to spray them with this other thing that's going to shield them from their natural presence. Yeah. Right? And that's what I learned from my great aunt Amelia when I was a little boy and I was planting tomatoes outside at our family house. We we're using miracle Grow and we we're spraying the crap out of these plants because that's what she had been taught. And yeah. we were so happy because we had these beautiful red tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it turns out that the scientific method is still there, still our friend yeah. to show us that a lot of those things actually are causing a lot of destruction. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that um, so the Oppenheimer. It's a good it's a good time we talk about this because Oppenheimer talks a lot about this too. But it's like you know, I think that most scientists when they came up with all these ideas, not all of them came from a place of good. You know, a scientist said, "Hey, let's find a way to have better crop retention to feed more people to pass it on," and then corporations co-opted that and said, "Let's profitize this at the cost expense of few generations." Like I'll use two very relevant examples. Roundup, right? The 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 main chemical in Roundup, right, that kills weeds. Like most people don't know that that same exact chemical was originally designed to scale benzene and other things off of like industrial waste containers. And they realized because someone actually dumps them out on the lawn that it only killed some species of weeds, not the grass, because of some kind of inhibitor in the process of producing energy that a lot of weeds have and share in common. Right. And you basically grew this massive thing where, you know, I think by the total existence of Roundup, we're at like year 75 of it or something like that in the, in the common culture. It's going to be responsible for somewhere around like, you know, half a billion deaths globally. Right. Which is insane, you know. And, and one could obviously attribute other factors than not just Roundup. Usually it's, you know, there's, there's obesity and other existing things. Like my grandfather's a great example. He was a Navy pilot. He was exposed to asbestos. He worked for, you know, chemical companies and all sorts of things. And we don't know what gave him his cancer. But my leading, my leading point is that when he was 12, he lived in Maryland near the original Dow plant. And he spent his summers in a bathing suit scrubbing the benzene pits clean with caustic chemicals. So, like, stuff nowadays that we wouldn't let kids get near, they used to throw kids into, right? That's, that's example number one. Example number two is aspartame. Right. Like I have been an anti-diet, anti-light, anti-whatever product for so long. So my parents taught me young that this is like the worst thing possible. Just drink the real thing. But like now that you have the UN and the WHO coming out saying that it's, it's, it's carcinogen, it's like, yeah, no shit. Because I think it was originally created as something that wasn't intended for what it was. Some scientists thought this is going to be brilliant. And then some corporations thought, I see now a way to build a whole narrative. Because most people don't realize that aspartame the stuff in their delicious Diet Coke or Diet Mountain Dew or Diet Spray, it's sucrose with chlorine gas passed over it. And that chlorine is reacting with the sucrose. So it's actually making it toxic for the human body. So it tastes like sugar, but your body cannot digest it, so it gets peed out. But literally in order to get that, you are putting toxins in your body. You're putting chlorine, which is like what, the number one killer of the one is chlorine gas. 
because in a reaction, the lungs turns into what? Hydrochloric acid. So this, this, this little tangent and bringing it back to Oppenheimer is this. It's like, I believe that Robert J. Oppenheimer created the atomic bomb for two reasons. One, because he knew he could, and there was an absolute ego there, and there was a belief and wanting a deep understanding of, of physics behind it, understanding. But also part one is that most of the people doing that were doing this in the Nazis' way, right? Because they, they, they kind of called a moral high ground, right? Which in this case, I think most of the world would agree was a moral high ground, right? Um, but, you know, that was then co-opted. And I think that a, a good point that Nolan really did as a director in, in showing that movie is like, you know, even though Oppenheimer created this, what the nuclear arms race dwarfed into was something he was very avidly trying to stop. And many people in power and money were pushing for that, right? Well, I think the danger in this whole line of conversation is that we vilify scientists mm -hmm. or we vilify innovators. And I don't. I think what we have to do is we have to have generalists and holistic thinkers that are stewards of our society. And our political system has failed us because the people that we've elected into positions of power aren't doing that work. And I think a great example is, you know, the implications of technology in our lifetimes with both social media or generative AI, yeah, oh where on the whole, these things have huge potential to make humanity, um, to, to benefit humanity, to do positive things for everyone on this planet. And if they're not regulated and thought about in a real way, they are also quite dangerous. You know, um, but that doesn't mean that that we need to like burn scientists at the at the stake, or that Oppenheimer shouldn't have created the atomic bomb, or that that we shouldn't have generative AI. Yeah. Like all of these things are are sort of inevitable on mm -hmm. on some level. Like that we can't avoid that. Yeah. What we can do is like a better job of stewarding. And this is actually one of the very few places where I think China does a better job in the U.S. I'm a, I'm a fierce patriot. I love this country. All of my grandparents were immigrants to this country. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've had so much opportunity here and I've traveled extensively and I've seen what our, even though it's flawed, what our free democracy offers and I'll pick it over anywhere else I've been any day. That said, I think that the way that Chinese uh, steward youth exposure to certain sorts of technology mm -hmm. by controlling the inputs in that, right? Yeah. So if you have a, a kid on TikTok in China, yeah. they're learning things. Mm -hmm. They're not watching dance videos and being sold Nikes they don't need. Yeah. They're learning things. And they're not allowed to watch those dance videos. They're not mm -hmm. being shown hypersexual content, hyperviolent content, yeah. and, and just trying to get pulled in further. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I'm not uh, qualified in any way to know how we would solve that in our country in a way that also allows for free speech and all the other things that we want and free commerce. But I, God, I wish there were people sitting around thinking about it and talking about it. And that that was where a lot of yeah. energy was going. Um, because I think we are hurting so many people with the way that we have technology. Absolutely. And I think TikTok's a great example because not only is China doing that on purpose, but also they're purposely showing the negative things to the U.S. on purpose as well. Like it's a double-sided coin, right? It's like the same system that is sending intelligent, educational, intellectual videos to their citizens is also sending the bottom-of-the-barrel dumbest stuff to our citizens, right? And that was done on purpose, right? And that's been documented. And, and, even, and Byte, ByteDance has actually said this, like publicly. They're like, they, 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 they're not hiding it. 
you know, which is one of the most fascinating things. And like, I think it's a pretty well-known fact about like the dangers of TikTok in modern society, especially in America. And a lot of people know that and they still use it freely. They still know the data it's stealing. They still know what it's, what it's meaning. They still know the implication of all of it, but like people still welcome it in their lives, which blows my mind. There's you a, know? there's a pharmacy in your brain, whether you realize it or not. Yeah. And sometimes you've accidentally walked into a casino and the, the jackpot that that casino is playing is serotonin. Yeah. You know? And I think that unfortunately those platforms have highly gamified. I actually think it's true with, you know, dating apps. I actually think it's true with Slack at this point. We're probably Slack. losing time. They're, they're burying a bunch of, of work hours that they're never going to get back. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know that. I know for me, I've, I've used TikTok mm -hmm. and it felt awesome. I loved it. Yeah. It felt like I was, I was using some sort of euphoric drug. Yeah. Right. And I know that afterwards I didn't feel great. And I know that probably my attention span was, was getting worse and all of these, uh, there were these, but you know, smoking a cigarette feels awesome. You know? Yeah. Um, drinking a glass of whiskey, a, a potent stimulant, yeah. mm -hmm. you know? So I think, I think there's ways that we need to, depending on what your beliefs are, your political beliefs. And I welcome debate about those things. We at least need to label these things as harm. There should at least be a pop-up window when you launch TikTok that says, this has been demonstrated to mess up your, uh, your uh, melatonin levels. So it's less likely for you to be able to fall asleep at night, shorten your attention span, um, give you less uh, agency, give you decision fatigue. So you're less likely to make informed uh, consumer decisions. You know, all the things that we kind of now know it does. Yeah. Um, but we ain't got that yet. No, and I don't think we will for a while. Cause I think, I think that uh, there's this, there's this guy I followed for a while and he, He's kind of one of those anonymous accounts on Twitter that's just like spitting out truth through philosophy. And one of my favorite tweets he ever did was was it was like um, talking about how most people are in denial about something or in a lot of things. And I think like denial is actually the main problem. It's it's not that they don't know that social media can be bad or like that food could be causing them problems or that like Roundup is secretly you know causing more problems than it's solving. It's like the idea that. Um, people are just in denial about it. Like they, 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 don't, they don't understand the actual, there's a cognitive distance, right? Of like, oh, this isn't me. This isn't affecting me. And I think that people, that's what fast fashion comes from too. It's like, oh yeah, but like I'm doing it so I can look cool and have this thing. Like I'm not impacting the environment. It's like, no, honey, you are. I want to play devil's advocate. I'm not even sure if I agree with what I'm about to say, but I want to posit that we've created an environment for the human being that is so anxiety inducing that that um, intentional sort of disbelief of risk is willingly brought on to get any anodyne for the suffering. Mm -hmm. Which is just to say, people I think are so stressed, they, they turn on the news and it's like, Global warming's coming for you. Chat GPT's coming for your job. <laughs> like your your kids are whatever, like whatever it is, whatever kind of like external things we're throwing at people on a daily basis that's grinding them and making them feel more precarious. 
I think they embrace these harmful things more willingly mm -hmm. because it makes them feel a little better for a little while. Or it makes them feel more alive. The quantity of people, like, yeah, well, or it just drowns out the 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 fear, the grinding fear. You know, I I, I remember I was watching someone one day play this um, Candy Crush game. You know. And this was clearly an addict. This person was was a hundred percent addicted to this game. It was probably like they could, you know, I don't know if you know what Mimo is, but they could have learned Python in the time they were putting in to mm -hmm. playing Candy Crush. Definitely could have learned French or Italian on Duolingo. Yeah, uh, could have taken a nursing class or whatever. And I think that their life must have just been because I know I've felt this way sometimes when I feel like really overwhelmed. Like I just need something to focus on to tune all this out. Sure some little suspenseful win or lose problem to try to try to work on. But I don't know. I think it presents like a very complicated problem. I like, I think about what was it up the Disney movie? No, not up. Wally. 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 Oh, the Disney yeah. movie where they're, or not Disney. Sorry. They're all in the little Disney. chairs and in, in mm -hmm. um, Disney. Yeah. Disney owns Pixar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think of that and, and I think of the matrix and I think mm -hmm. of where we're headed. And and like if if Musk's Neuralink works, right? They're 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 now saying like Apple's basically reintroducing Google Glass, right? Yeah, like it's right. it's just re, re Yeah. It's it's, re it's a much more well, I think the it's far more immersive than Google Glass ever was. And I used Google Glass when it came out in two thousand eleven. Sure. I was one of those like I got one of those high school uh, college like um sponsorship things where I get to go try it because I was an engineering student and it was really cool and it was really ahead of its time. But I, I sold mine cause I didn't really do money for college and stuff like that. But, um, I just was like, I was like, this is too early. This has no utility for me. It actually brings me more disuse than use. So what essentially what I thought was someone in the future, probably Apple is going to do a much better version. And I think that, Probably Google Glass, they want to be like an augment of existing and kind of be like, oh, it's here, but it's not here. And I think Apple nailed it by being like, you're either fully in the world or you're looking at the world through the world. But if you don't want it, just take it off, right? Not this idea of like, oh, it just sits in your face and people don't realize it's there. It's like, I went on the subway in New York City with it on my face in 2012. Everyone noticed it. It was like, people are like, are you recording here? Because there, there was a camera on right up there. Like, Please don't record me. Stop recording me. I'm like, it's not a recording. It's just on my face. They're like, oh, but why is there a camera there? Then? It's like, well, first stuff, no one has trust anymore. Um, that's part one. And then part two, it's like, I think Apple realized like, it can't look like a device. It has to look like something different or something familiar, right? It has to look like something futuristic. It has to look like something that is avant-garde, right? And it, I think it's, I think it's a, from an industrial design perspective, it's a beautiful device. From an everyday use perspective, jury's still out but like i know them like this is v0 it's gonna have a lot of problems it's gonna be really cool in some ways but like five years from now when the iphone 5 equivalent comes out with like touch id people are gonna be like whoa and then when there's you know the the vision pro 12 headset and you know 2035 it's it's gonna be hard to differentiate for a lot of people you know um do you think do you think we'll even be there in 2035 or you think we'll just be on Neuralink? Like, where do you stand on the whole cyborg? Like, 
crossing the biotech divide. Yeah. So, so here, here's my thing. I personally want nothing to do with it right now. Um, if I got in some kind of accident or had some kind of cognitive decline or some kind of disease that would limit some kind of motor skill or brain function. Absolutely. Like it's already been proven. It can reconnect and find new neurons to make limbs start working again. So like if I was a, if I was a, like a paraplegic and it would give me a chance to walk again, Oh, there's zero. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even think twice. Like it doesn't matter if it was half of every dollar I'd have for the rest of my life. Think about the utility that adds or the, 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 or like, you know, what, or like if someone's blind and they can find a way to reconnect. I mean, there are certain types of blindness, right? There's certain types of blindness caused by like neural lapses and problems in the brain. And they're actual diseases that kind of destroy the cornea, right? If, if you've destroyed corneas or retinas, like you're done, you're not going to see, right? But if it's a neurological thing, which is a, a, a good amount of vision problems and they can be fixed like that with some programming, sure. You know, like, do I think you need to be safeguards in place? Yes. Do you need to be very careful? Yes, absolutely. Would I advertise that I have one? No. Like I would want it to be a very secretive thing, right? I think because as soon as someone knows you have it, then you are susceptible to, because I don't believe that technology is unhackable. There's always a way to hack technology, right? Um, and so like if I had one, I wouldn't want people to know I had one because then, I'm, then I would be hackable. And that to me would be like my worst fear. It's like, could you imagine someone taking over some kind of decision-making or motor function to make you do something embarrassing or commit a crime or do something heinous? You know, like, I think at the end of the day, I believe that there are always people out there that want to do good. There are always people that want to do bad. I don't, I, I do believe that human beings are born inherently good, but I think that can change rather quickly, you know? Um, and that's just based on socialization. And also sometimes, sometimes people just have brain chemistry that just isn't good. You know, and there's really no reason that they, there's no, like, they weren't socialized a certain way. They were given a certain thing. They just have brain chemistry where they, like, get joy out of pain or get joy out of harm or get joy out of hurting other people. And that's a very, very small number of people, but they do exist, you know? So it's, it's interesting. That exact dilemma feels like it could be one of the best case scenario. And I say could, could be one of the best case scenario use cases for something like Neuralink, yeah. where if somebody struggles with empathy mm -hmm. and we can give them a bridge yeah. into another human being and they can experience what it's like to be inside of that other human being's consciousness. Now, this is obviously very far away from yeah. even the sorts of technology we're talking about. Now. Um, like that could be incredible. Mm -hmm. Just the, the raw potential of that could be incredible. Personally, terrified of it. Yeah. have no interest in it um i'm like a luddite if anything i'm always like let's move away from these things sure because if anything they've brought us further away from our true nature yeah um but i think that to be sitting here talking to a computer mm -hmm. that's what i'm doing right now i'm talking to a screen yeah and you're on the other side of the country mm -hmm. And it's recording us and transmitting us in real time. Yeah, so we're living in the and past. And I'm going to end this conversation. Unplug it and put it in a, a satchel that I can ride a bike with and take it home. To be doing all of that today compared to the way the world looked when I was nine years old, yeah. which was you know 32 years ago. To think about where these things are going to take us in the next 32 years is insane. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the, the, I think... I, I forget, like, I remember, 
I was at summer camp when there was this like really rich kid and the iPhone 3GS had just come out. It's like the third iPhone. And it, had, it was the first time of the video recording capabilities. Um, and it had a flashlight too. And that was like, whoa, this is, this is, this is a light. They can use as a flashlight and it records video. And that was, what, 2009, 2010? And so in 13 years, which is like a lot of time, but not a lot of time, we're now at... What, what are, we're, we're at a point in time where someone can buy an AI girlfriend that is literally designed to fill their needs and wants and desires. That's all that people want. You know, it's, 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 it's crazy. Like I can't wait to tell my kids or even I like, I like talking to young kids these days because they were like, you know, what age did you get a smartphone? I was like, well, I had a flip phone when I was in eighth grade, 2008. And then I got, I was lucky. My, uh, my, my dad and mom were big iPhone people. They thought it was like great because they, they all had like Palm Pilots or Blackberries and they wanted, and they loved Apple. And they're like, this is great. So I always got the hand-me-down iPhones, which I was fine with. So like I was actually in sophomore freshman in high school, 2008, when I got my first iPhone. Uh, end of like fall 2008. And I thought it was the coolest thing. Um, I was also that kid in my school that has the iPhone, right? Um, and then everyone started having it. Then it became a normal thing. But my big thing is like, I am so happy and thankful that I had that phone because it gave me enough of a distraction through high school to make me realize that like most education or quote unquote education I was learning in high school was not important, right? Like I was a terrible student. Like this shouldn't, this shouldn't surprise anyone, but like I slept in class. I was playing games. I was looking up things on the internet. Like I was doing, like I was never bad. I was never getting in trouble or beating up anyone or playing pranks. I was just like bored. This is very bored, you know. Um, I don't know where that tangent came from. I don't know if you. But yeah. again, I feel like you and I would have been friends. Yeah, if we'd been the same age and in school together. And I had a pager. I did not have a phone. <laughs> the only thing you could really do to distract yourself with a pager was like you know dial it into weird word configurations made of numbers, For sure. yeah, which was not a whole lot. Once yeah. you've done hello and boobs, you've kind of done it all. <laughs> um, but I was sitting there very skeptical yeah. of a lot of the, the works we were being put through. Mm -hmm. And um, also it was a, was, it's, it's interesting to me, I have two groups of friends that have sort of done cool and interesting things in life. Mm -hmm. And one group was uh, actually our mutual friend, Andrea is one of these people, mm -hmm. top of her class, 100% of yeah she's awesome never got an a minus probably never got less than 100 she's absolutely incredible she's yeah. an incredible wonderful person who i deeply love and who's a deep thinker and capable of systemic critical thought mm -hmm. and but she was just studying the whole time and then there's people like you and me that were like fuck this like no not for us and then we had to come into it again later in our own way yeah and um learn differently for yeah. sure which is what i've been lucky really lucky that i've been been allowed to do, been privileged enough to do. Yeah. Over the course. Of yeah, it's it's interesting because like on the Andreas and the Daniels and the Robs of the world, they all do very different things and have very different pedigrees, but they're all very important to the overall mission, right? And I think that you know, in my senior project in engineering school, there's this one kid, Chad. So it was a Chad. Uh, him and I, uh, he was like a double aerospace electrical engineering major, uh, real dick actually. Um, he's just kind of condescendingly smart, 
you know? Um, but I remember, you know, I was struggling with a lot of anxiety my senior year, a lot of other things, like just, just a lot of just stuff you hit when you're like 21, 20. Um, and so I didn't really get to spend as much time as I wanted in a senior project. And I also felt like kind of like I wasn't as good of a technical engineer as the other I, I was working with like the next top three in my class. Like these are like, the, these are the people that were like the technical best engineers still to this day, like are now running whole teams of, of engineers, et cetera, et cetera, at, and, and, they're, and they're third, right? But um, I remember there's one day, like he called me out for like, I wasn't doing anything. And my advisor who used to be the head of propulsion for the Air Force looked at, looked at him and goes, and he's like, this is a very important lesson for both of you. He's like, what you're learning is that Rob is not as technically as good as you and is not as useful in this one part of the project. But he's like, but Rob keeps the team going. He is the one that is picking up the slack where people aren't noticing there is slack. He's the one that's keeping everyone together. He's the one running around doing all this little So all the, at the end of the day, like, was he an integral part of the technical aspect of what happened? No. Could it have happened without him? Maybe, but it, it probably not. You know? And even though Chad disagreed with my advisor, I think my advisor was right. And that was the first time I was just like, I think I realized, I was like, I don't want to go work for an engineering company. I'm going to go do my own thing. This is, this is some hot bullshit. I don't want to deal with this ever again. You know? Um, so I think every, everything it would have been uh, a waste of your time. For sure. I'll go a step further. It would have been a waste of your talent mm -hmm. to go be the fifth best engineer at an engineering company when you can be the best job. Yeah. You know? For sure. Yeah. Um, it's just, uh, I, I think that's like, that's maturity and that's hard earned and it's hard earned for all of us, mm -hmm. I think. Um, but it's, it's cool to see and recognize, you know? Yeah, I think I've, I told the story before, but I'm really thankful. I have this guidance, this engineering guidance counselor named Melissa Mena, um, who left shortly after I graduated. Um, but, you know, I was super beat up because, you know, the application process of getting jobs in aerospace is like super, super depressing. You like submit 200 job proposals at Boeing and you don't even get no's from more than half of them. They just, they just never tell you it's a no. It is assumed because it's been four months that you know it's a no. Um, that's what that's the system is built. They want they want more as many because they want to be able to say we had X number of applications. It's like fucking college admissions bullshit. But uh, she sat me down and she's like, you know, you don't have to be an engineer. And I was like, but I'm. I was like, I was like, Melissa, like I spent so much time and money going to like one of the best schools in the country for this. Like just just like let me have this thing. Like I'm not dropping out. She's like, oh no 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 no. Like graduate, get your degree. But like engineers at the core are problem solvers. They are interdisciplinary problem solvers, especially aerospace, because they have to take in so many different types of worlds into one thing. She's like, you have a drive that most people don't want, and you don't care about the level of detail that's needed to really like want to be a good engineer. And she's like, also, oh, you don't want to be that person that's like eight years in dealing with a bunch of governmental bullshit and red tape and making like. 13% more than they were making after they got into that job after college. And I'm like, you're right. Thank you for giving me a dose of reality. And then after that, I kind of changed my entire world. Like it was like the first, like almost permission to not be in the path I had set myself on. And then after that, it was just like, once you taste that little bit of sweetness, you're like, Oh fuck this. I'm going crazy. You know, like I'm going off the deep end in a good way. Well, I think that little bit of sweetness was just the, 
it was the right decision. Mm-hmm. I think I don't think it would have been a little bit of sweetness if you were meant to be like company man, engineer in an aerospace company. It would suck, you know. Climate and there's I, I wouldn't have stayed. To do, that's yeah. not a bad thing. Those people are great, you know. So. You need you need specialists, right? Like I am not a specialist. I'm a generalist, and I will I will wear that badge. You are too. I'll wear that badge of pride. And I think the biggest misconception is like you can be a generalist and still be very knowledgeable in the top one percent of a certain field. You can actually be in the top percent of many fields. Right? Will you be the top 0.01%? No, but you don't need to be. You never rarely need to be. Right? Um, I think you look at the the modern titans of industry and people that have changed the world, like the Jobs and the Musks. Like they're not in the top one percent of any of the things they touch, but everything they work with and the people they work on are. Right? Like the Apple design team is the 0.01% of design. Right? I don't know, man. Even if you're, I just think I have such a more generous view of the world right mm-hmm. now for whatever reason even if you're in you know Texarkana in a customer service position that allows the auto mechanic shop to keep going yeah because you're not an auto mechanic but you're you're the person that like people you're deb and people love talking to you and they trust you <laughs> and they know you're going to solve their problems whatever you know like deb in Texarkana, that's a great life man if, if what you're doing oh, look i'm not shitting on anything that's awesome and if, sure. it, and if it draws on talents that are innate in you, you feel, that's the other thing I've realized is like, if you feel comfortable doing something, like maybe like pressed a little bit, like, like, like challenged, but you still feel kind of comfortable in, in your core, right? Like, you know, you're like, there's some risk. It's hard what you're doing, but you know, you know, that's like something that comes naturally to you and you're just pushing it a level further. That's what you should be doing. You know, and when it's something that you like have to force it so hard, it doesn't come naturally to you at all. Yeah. I think our society doesn't like, I look at Adderall as like a medication in, in kind of quotes that, and, and no judgment to people with diagnosed ADHD and ADD. Like, but I, I look at the way it's used in American oh, crime yeah. culture. I think there are a lot of 55 year old people that had a midlife crisis because they were put on study drugs at a young age and they would have organically done something else at a higher level of excellence mm-hmm. with a great career, mm-hmm. right? Um, but they grew up in a certain type of household and a certain type of community. They're funneled into certain schools. And it was like, you know, you need to be a doctor, a lawyer, a banker. Those are the three things you can be. Yeah. And, and you're not rising to that occasion enough uh, or organically, oh. biologically, naturally. So we're going to augment that. We're going to give you these, these drugs. Um, and you know, that's an overprescription issue. That's not necessarily like a, like I'm not taking on ADD or medical needs for those compounds. I'm we're talking about a cultural phenomenon, but yeah, I just think people have so much cool potential to do cool and interesting things when you let them yeah. do the things they want. Yeah. And you, and you forgot about the fourth horse in the apocalypse, which is in my mind, the worst, which is the consultant. I have some friends who are consultants who I fucking love, dude. Uh, sorry, swearing okay, by the way? I've just been Yeah, it. swearing's fine. Uh, we, our video keeps missyncing. I don't know if you see me actually, but I'm going to shut off low data so we can keep talking so people don't know the difference, even though they just hear me say that out loud. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think everything you said is, is not only poignant, but something I've, you know, not only stood in a soapbox for for a long time, but like I, you know, on the Asperger spectrum, 
ADHD, OCD, anxiety, all the acronyms, all the fun stuff, all the special classrooms growing up, right? Um, I resisted every single drug they ever gave me because to me it was like the worst idea was not being in control of like what I wanted or could think. Like I remember when I went on Ritalin in like second grade, I was depressed. Like I think like from a almost a proper psychological or even like clinical perspective, like I was depressed and they took me off it because I just wasn't being myself. And I remember feeling so much better afterwards. Like, did I get less done? Yes. But like, I think what my parents quickly realized is like, it wasn't that I was less productive is I was just more productive on the th things that, you know, I wanted to spend time on, not things I didn't want to spend time on. So does that make sense? Totally. I mean, I think the, the fact that we have this beautiful word now, neurodiversity mm -hmm. is exactly right. Um, and the, it's a real post-industrial phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? Where human beings aren't gears in a machine. And so when you don't fit that, that empty space that, that your birthplace tells you you're supposed to fit into, you're, the DSM throws some labels at you and then they throw you on some meds. And that said, there are people that these drugs make meaningful differences for in their daily lives. There are people with like severe focus deficits. There are people that, you know, would, would light fire to their house because they would forget to turn off the burner and forget they were cooking, you know? And, and that some medication in those cases makes total sense to me. Um, but I think it, I remember someone explained it to me in this really beautiful way one time that um, the DSM is based in many cases on a bell curve. And if you think about the left side of the bell curve, that place where it sort of flattens out the very bottom on a, on a statistical level, um, if, you, if you cut that off and you put it in the middle through mm -hmm. medication, yeah. bell curve still exists. It just readjusts. So now you have the people that were a little higher up the bell curve slumping down to fill that void that was made by the removal, yeah. right? And then you cut them off by giving them medication and they go up a level, you know, and yeah. you continue so forth and so on. But the problem is, um, is that the latent effects of that on the high end is not that it, the medication no longer works, that the medication causes people to do some rash things or suicide or worse, you know? Uh, totally. And that's, yeah, all yeah. of these things have undesired effects that we just call side effects. Yeah. Um, We're trading the variance like for the mean. Right. It's like nine, the average is fine, but there's a 3% of people that, you know, when they take SSRIs, they're probably going to kill themselves. And that's like accepted in modern society, sadly, you know? Well, and I think it comes back to this thing of the, the generalist, the importance of the generalist, mm -hmm. the importance of the GP, right? Like if yeah. you have, I can't tell you how many people I know, even middle-aged people, they don't have just a regular doctor. They see they have specialists. You know, they see the gynecologist or they see the dermatologist or if they've got a heart problem, they see the cardiologist, but they don't have a GP that they sit with once a year and just talk about everything holistically that's yeah. happening with them. Which is so important. And uh, yeah, and I think, but that's like a really nice uh, analog or metaphor to what we were sort of talking about earlier with like the guardrails in our society with like tech. It's like when we get too laser focused on this one thing, 
you know, and we're just, we're just treating that. And we're not looking at like, well, is this person actually like healthier and happier? Is this person, is this person thriving with the addition of this compound or are they actually just getting more done and they're making more money, but they feel like crap yeah. and they're depressed, you know, they crash every night as soon as they're off work and they can't do anything but like, you know, sit on a couch, watch TV. That's um, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's most of it, but at the end of the day, what I think matters most is that we cannot, if, if you lose yourself while being successful at something, I don't think you're successful at that. And many people who are like, oh yeah, it's like, you know, their parents are successful X, but they're terrible. You know, they're never around. They're not happy. They're alcoholics. They're, you know, and you hear the story often. It's like, oh, but they're a good lawyer or like, oh, they're a great doctor or like, oh, they're a great X. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, like if, if you have to exchange your entire life and put your family or your friends or yourself, God forbid yourself, at the expense of a career, go fuck yourself. I'm sorry. You know, like if nothing's worth that much. That person, I would argue that person doesn't really love themselves. Oh, most likely does not love themselves. Most likely hates themselves. Yeah. That person's trying to prove their own worth through hyper-focus on one pursuit that our society tends to reward and, and give things to. Um, but that person probably doesn't love themselves. I don't know. I mean, I definitely have examples in my life. A, a dear friend of mine's dad uh, was like a hugely successful private equity guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, billions of dollars. And back in the day, you know, like we're talking like 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, so before it was um, And he had, I think, six failed marriages. Yeah, Jesus. And scattered kids from all of them and terrible relationships with all the kids. Yeah. And, and drug and drug really drugs. Yeah. Yeah. His, his most... Uh, his most successful social relationships were like his fishing guide and people that kind of worked for him. Yeah. You know? Um, and I don't actually know, but I imagine that guy really didn't like himself. Yeah. You know, he's That's trying to get out of something. Yeah. People yeah. in denial. Right. I feel like we've made a really depressing, uh, uh, episode of your podcast <laughs> no i think this is i think this is great like i think we people need hope but they also need reality that's not reality can be a, a sucker punch to the balls but i think it's necessary um because you know i think you and i both have hard outs at least i know i do uh in a few minutes i want to i usually yeah. wrap up every episode by asking a few um rapid fire questions in which case um you know you can answer in as few or many words as you'd like um but i'll see do you have um, a sound that you associate with happiness? Yeah. Like a triangle chime kind of sound. Mm. Or Why? like a like a wind chime, like a certain pitched wind chime. Why? Yeah, why is that? I think that the wind chime specific, there have been moments in my life where I've gotten to sit on a porch. Not one porch specifically, but many porches where there's been a wind chime and I've just sort of looked off to the horizon. And I think in many of those moments, I've felt as content and free mm. as, as I have. Hmm. I like that. 
Um, and I'll get you out of here on this, on this last question, which is uh, if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area, where would it be and what would it say? I, I think I might go global. Um, and I think I would ask people, I'm going to kind of paraphrase, but um, listen first. Mm -hmm. That's what I, that's my goal for myself. I wish someone would send me that push notification constantly. <laughs> yeah. Listen first. You know? Listening is a superpower. Yeah, hear it all the way. Yeah, hear it all the way out. Cool. Um, anything you want to Thanks plug? So much for yeah, for sure, man. Anything you want to plug or share before I uh, we, we hop? And there's definitely going to be a, uh, a a second part for sure. I think we both do that. Um, so we probably talked for eight hours <laughs> yeah, in a van. Um, when when will this come out? Um, in a few weeks. We'll let, we'll let the audience decide based on what else comes through. Okay, so then whoop. Dot Earth mm -hmm. is my store where you can buy my soil. Yeah. W O O P dot E A R T H. And it's kick ass. So that's what I'll say. Try it. Try it. Learning sure. by doing. For Learning sure. by doing. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much again for the time. Uh, you and I will connect offline briefly in a second. Um, but uh, to everyone else listening, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate what you're doing here and I appreciate you having me on. Of course. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation between myself and Daniel. You can find him online by Googling Daniel Grossman. That's spelled G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N. And as always, you can find me online at Rob Auchincloss or Rob is Lost. I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day. Goodbye.